Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Last July, when Traditionis Custodes came out, there was quite a lot of interesting activity on Twitter. And there was a certain sort of keyboard ultramontane <laughs> who would post on Twitter to the effect, now you've got it, you tradies. You've got a papal instruction with canonical force in the motu proprio. And you all know about Vatican I and Pastor Eternus and supreme papal jurisdiction over the church against which there is no appeal... No court will hear your case. You've flipping well got to obey, and if you don't, you're, you're immoral and schismatic, and you should, well, whatever. <laughs> and one, one chap actually posted a, a, a photograph of Pastor Iternus, that relevant text from the bit that deals with papal jurisdiction, with the relevant passages underlining green ink. And, you know, and see why I was doing this. You know, we read passages like this. Um, the juridical authority of the Roman pontiff is both episcopal and immediate. It's a preeminence of ordinary jurisdiction over every other church. Therefore, in relation to this juridical authority, clergy and faithful of whatever right and dignity, uh, both singly and collectively, are bound by a duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience and this not only in matters concerning faith and morals, but also in those which regard the discipline and government of the church throughout the world. You know, duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience. You could see where this keyboard ultramontane was coming from. And there's a further paragraph that says, the sentence or judgment of the uh, judicial judgment of the apostolic see than which there is no higher authority is not subject to revision by anyone, nor may anyone lawfully pass judgment thereupon. You could immediately even see moral criticism as out of court, though. But certainly, you know, you, you, you're on your own, guys, if you want to come up against this, this juridical um, Leviathan. Um, of course... You immediately think, yeah, look, this is clearly defining a legal structure. It's talking about juridical authority, a preeminence of ordinary jurisdiction, and talking about obedience and duty in relation to a juridical authority. See, obviously, it's talking about a, duty, a legal duty of obedience. But we all know that you can have legal duties that are not moral duties. You can have that in relation to the state. And maybe you can have it in relation to the church as well. If, for example, something has very gone badly wrong in the exercise of the legal authority concerned. Sure, you've got a legal obligation, but there's been a mis-exercise of some sort of legal authority. And in this particular case, even if you recognise the authority in general, so you're not schismatic in relation to it, you think you have great justification for not obeying. Or if you do have justification for obeying, it's merely prudential not because you're directly morally obliged by the law. You just want to avoid the sanctions or the, 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 the grief is going to come your way if you disobey. Um, and that this might be the case was rather emphasised to people who didn't already know about it 
when shortly after the keyboard ultramontanes got going on Twitter, a bit few months after, on the traditionalist side of the church, people started posting excerpts from counter-reformation theologians of a generally papalist outlook. People like Bellamin, Suarez, and the like. At least, these are generally papalists. They're people in the late 16th or early 17th century who have a view of papal authority that's pretty much like that in pastoral terms. One could go into details, but I mean, they don't think you can appeal against the judgment of a pope to a general council. They really don't think you can do that. Um, but they're saying that you can get <clears throat> exercises of a papal canonical authority that are sufficiently objectionable that you can't appeal against them, but you can resist them. You can resist them through non-extra-legal obstruction, and you can resist them through, through just non-cooperation, non-compliance, um, in principle. So here's a passage that was, went up in Rorati Celi from Bellamin, De Sumo Pontifice. As it is lawful to resist a pope if he attacks the body, so it is lawful to resist him if he attacks the soul or afflicts the state, and much more if he seeks to destroy the church. It is permitted, I say, to resist him by not doing what he commands and by preventing the execution of his will. But it is not lawful to judge him or to punish him or to depose him, which alone is the business of a superior, and he doesn't have one on earth. <laughs> Certainly not a general counsel. So... And then there's a really interesting passage from Suarez, which also was put up on Rorati Celi, and I'm not surprised. It's, it's from the Treatise on the Supernatural Virtues. It's from De Caritate on Charity, in which Suarez considers the case of a pope who abolishes apostolic liturgies, who comprehensively abolishes all ceremonies confirmed by apostolic tradition. You can see the sort of, uh, sort of ooh, we've got an ally against this, this evil man in Rome who's misexercising his authority, we can just say we won't obey. Um, and so you, you, you've, got, you've got, on one hand, the keyboard Archmontanes, and on the other hand, you've got a sort of popular traditionalism in, in, on the internet that says we've got, in these 16th and 17th century theologians, allies in our cause of resisting through obstruction and non-cooperation the hostile juridical activity of misguided Pope. <clears throat> well, I don't think you do. Because actually, these, these claims by Suarez and Bellamy are ripped out of context, as so often happens in the internet. Actually, what you've got is something very different. In these theologians, you've got what I'm going to call a theology of canonical authority that actually does not really leave open much prospect of a misexercise of canonical authority by the Pope or a council approved by the Pope uh, or anyone of whom else whom the Pope approves of in the church. So, uh, such a misexercise as to remove in the general case your moral obligation to obey. What these cases are, are ex-hypothesi cases where you're proposing something that's sort of if this peron impossible happened, or pretty close to peron possible happened, then you would have to do this rather than that. And they're usually in the text as a way of deflecting problem cases 
put by conciliarist and Gallican theologians. If you got a naughty pope, the Gallican or the conciliarist would say, the obvious thing you do is you appeal to somebody who's higher than him and going to be more sensible, which is the general council. And Bellman was like, no, you can't do that. Of course, you could do something that you can do without having political authority over somebody, which is just resist. I can do that if you come and attack me. I can resist you. I don't have to have any authority over you just to defend my life. So he says, you can do that. But the point is, that's the only thing you can do, because the fundamental truth of this situation is no one has any authority over the Pope. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a concession, but it's not an illustration of a real possibility. And we'll see when we come back to Suarez's case, that's exactly what's going on. In fact, what we're dealing with is an official theology that um, maximalises the moral force of canonical authority, particularly where it's, it's backed by the Pope. Um, it's deeply papalist in that respect. And um, it's almost certainly false. I don't believe it. And, in fact, we can say that, actually, there's clear evidence that, at the time, it was based on clear historical falsehood. I'll explain why. But it, it, it was absolutely very influential in the church. If you look at the proceedings of the Council of Trent, they are effectively applying this false, official, what I call official theology of canonical authority to determine what is going to be defined as a, as a dogma of the church in the anathematizing canons. Um, I call it an official theology. You can already see this theology of canonical authority is not magisterially taught. To be magisterially taught, it would have to be proposed formally by ecclesiastical authority with a clear indication that you are under an obligation to believe it. And once that is the case, there will then be a guarantee um, of some freedom of error from it. You know. Um, I have an at least an obligation of religious submission of mind and will, to use the Vatican II uh, expression. But in the case of something uh, proposed as a definition, um, actual belief. And once that obligation, which is certainly going to be legal and may also be moral, uh, is guaranteed to be moral, I think, in these cases, is imposed, then the guarantee swings in, and you've got to believe it. But none of this stuff is, is taught that way. But it's relied upon by the people who teach that way in the general council. But it is false, and it's gone away. I don't think anyone in the church is going to believe some of the things I'm going to be describing. Um, and the true lesson of this whole thing is not that there is some constant pre-Vatican II theology of the church which vindicates modern traditionalism. That, at that level, it doesn't exist. What the lesson for us on the traditionalist side of the church is that the big danger in the church, at all dates, is an uncritical attitude towards official theology, combined with the aggressive use of canonical authority by office holders to enforce not orth magisterial orthodoxy, I'm no quarrel with that, but submission merely to official theology. I'll come back to that. That's the problem. And these guys are on the side of doing that. <coughs> they were involved in it themselves. Um, so they're actually baddies. They're not on your side. <laughs> okay. Um, so behind all this, we, we need to understand this theology because it's very interesting. We need to see where it's coming from. And deep at the heart of it is a fundamentally sound conception 
or what I'm going to call a potestas, <clears throat> a legal authority, a sovereign legal authority. Now, what's a potestas? Well, it has the capacity to impose legal obligations, which at least some of the time it's in a position to uh, 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 leave as moral obligations. It can morally obligate you, some of the time at least. Um, maybe not all of the time, that's going to be the issue we're looking at. Because um, sometimes things go wrong, and then, then in this particular case, it hasn't managed to morally obligate, obligate you. But in general case, a potestas has this general capacity morally to obligate you through imposing legal obligations, and then it's also going to have justification Legal and again generally moral, but there will be exceptions, like when the penalties are too fierce or it shouldn't have been imposing the legal obligation. It's got the authority to impose sanctions or punishments on you. It can, to use the technical term, coerce you. And in the Catholic tradition, um, the state is a potestas, and fairly obviously so, but so too is the church. That is why Vatican, Vatican I is defining a kind of juridical authority appropriate to someone who's a kind of monarch of a potestas a supreme bishop, amongst other bishops, um, whose, whose authority is unconstrained by any other uh, authority, legal authority within the church. Obviously, it's subject to divine law and the moral law. We'll come back to that. Um, that the church is a potestas is highly controversial. And uh, one famous early um, opponent of this idea of the church as a potestas is Thomas Hobbes. And I won't go into Hobbes's theories. I mean, it's a major preoccupation of Leviathan to remove the church as a potential potestas or a plausible potestas. There can only be one potestas, the state. <clears throat> and to do that, he introduces a general conception of what a potestas is, that although many aspects of Leviathan, of Hobbes' political theory, haven't survived, this general conception of what a potestas is has survived. And it's, very, it's, it's what you get in most modern political theory at some level or other. Essentially, a potestas is an enormous coordinatory device. What we do, we all wander around, we all want things, we've all got these desires and, and motivations, and they're apt to lead to conflict. And if we try to satisfy them just, you know, in a loose sort of social melange, we won't succeed, we'll just get confusion. You know, we can't spontaneously work out the traffic system for London, just as citizens of London, that sort of stuff. So what we need, and, you know, we all want stuff, um, what we need to prevent the conflict is a set of property rights that are then going to be enforced. And so what the state is, is just a, a vast coordinatory device which reconciles and organises in a coordinatory fashion the satisfaction of everyone's motivations. And in doing that, it's not exercising a kind of authority that you couldn't exercise in a small private group without something like the state, you know, just by reaching into agreements amongst one, each other. Um, but once you get a, you know, big enough population problem, then you need a central authority. And um, it, it coordinates everything. And it's, it's, it's channeling and, and coordinating the satisfaction of desires. Well, clearly a church isn't about that. Uh, but, but you could look at the state and think, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. And if you buy that picture, already the church has removed a potential potestas. And that's, that was Hobbes' genius. That was, that, was, that was the thought at the heart of Leviathan and his other political works. So what's he got wrong about what a potestas is like? Once we see this, we begin to get an idea of why this official theology of canonical authority got going. It's, it's this thought. The potestas isn't simply a coordinatory device. So clearly, it does organise traffic rules and works out property rights and things like that, if that's what it is. And again, it'll coordinate liturgies. 
you know, organized liturgical uniformity. Um, but it's more than that, it's a teacher. And the reason it's got an authority as a potestas that you don't have, or groups of you don't have, is that it has an epistemic competence in relation to an end that its authority serves. In relation to the state, that's the bonum commune, the, the, the welfare or happiness or good of a complete human community. You as private individuals can't work out how property should work just for a complete human political community. For that, you need political institutions. And within the framework of the political institutions, we then get an understanding of the Bonham community in relation to things like property. And that's why, of course, just as private individuals, we can't, don't have an authority to do things like punishing. In Anglo-Saxon post-Hobbesian theory, in Locke's universe, you know, as you know, in Locke's state of nature, individuals, as private individuals, have an authority to punish people. But of course, they can't do that on this conception of the potestas, because to have the authority to punish, you have to have the capacity to understand that the end to which the system of legal direction and its enforcement through sanctions is directed. And it's the potestas that possesses that understanding. The state in relation to the Bonham community, the church in relation to the supernatural end. And now we're beginning to see that both church and state uh, are doing something rather similar. They're teaching in relation to a good, outside the law, strictly directive laws themselves, but partly through them as well. So, you know, when judges enforce the law of theft, they're telling you about property rights and their importance. I'm sending you down for 12 years, mate, because you've disregarded the importance of property rights. Um, and the church understands and teaches us about the supernatural end and then applies laws to direct us to it. Now, we know that the state can go wrong as a teacher. It can go wrong as a teacher, it can misunderstand the Bonham community. For example, a modern state clearly has a deficient understanding of the good of family structure and marriage. And we're all see living with the consequences. And that mistaken view of family structure and marriage is accompanied by defective laws concerning marriage. And some of them might be sufficiently defective, I won't bother with examples, where you might think, I'm not really under a moral obligation to go with this. Uh, you know, if I wanted to break it on the break something to do with this on the quiet and get away with it, I'd be perfectly justified in doing so because there's something rather evil about this this, this marriage legislation. Um, now, of course, the state is not an infallible teacher, but the church is. And I've just said in this case of the state, there seems to be a connection between things going wrong at the teaching end and things going wrong at the legal direction end. So. Things can't go wrong in the case of the church, at the teaching end. The thought starts occurring to, that means they can't go wrong at the legal direction end. So the, the thought is, if the church is an infallible teacher, she must also be an impeccable lawgiver. That is, her laws will never conflict, as state laws might, with divine, revealed, or natural law. And they won't, uh, like the laws of a really crap, sort of traffic system, uh, without being directly immoral in themselves, just be terribly bad at getting to the uh, Bonham Commune, um, such that, you know, you, you, you might as well disregard them, they're so bad. That can't happen, uh, you might think, with the church. So the church, laws of the church will never contradict morality directly, and they all will always serve the supernatural end. They will be impeccable in that respect, and then you'll always have a moral obligation to obey them. And what's tending to happen with these guys is that they think that there's an argumentative route 
from the infallibility of the church as a teacher to the impeccability of the church as a lawgiver. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there isn't. I mean, the, the, that might not be suggested by the fact that Vatican I defines supreme jurisdiction, papal primacy in relation to jurisdiction, alongside papal primacy in relation to teaching. It defines infallibility in relation to teaching, but it doesn't define impeccability in relation to uh, legal direction. There is nothing in Pastraternus about whether or how far the church's laws can contradict or conflict immediately with divine or natural law, or in otherwise be damaging to the, good of the, the supernatural good and the good of the ecclesial community. There's nothing there. I don't know of any magisterial teaching that actually unambiguously addresses this question. Um, and it's not surprising. It'd be strange, actually, if they don't want to make Maximus claims, if the magisterium would ever actually go public on how, for example, it's the bind, morally binding quality of its legal prescriptions might be limited in some way. You know, here's, the t here's when you can disobey me. They're not, they're not going to do that, are they? Um, but there's a comprehensive silence about this in the magisterial tradition, I think, but there ain't a silence in the official theological tradition because we have guys talking about the problem. And um, <clears throat> there's a very strong tendency in all these people uh, to think that the settled canon law of the church uh, established and its established exercise is impeccable. So here's a passage from Suarez is concerning the legitimacy of the punishment of heresy. Suarez is saying, how do we know that it's morally justified for the church to punish heretics? Now, there is magisterial teaching, I think, saying, saying that it is, but I won't go into that. It's not our topic. In this passage, Suarez doesn't appeal to that at all. He appeals to an impeccability in the church's exercise, or the Pope's exercise, of their legal authority. Secondly, I prove the claim, the moral legitimacy of the punishment of heresy, from the custom of the church. For the whole church makes use of an authority to do this, an authority that has been so employed since ancient times. But the whole church cannot err in moral questions and in matters pertaining to religion and justice. It is in itself quite unbelievable that church usurped this authority tyrannically and without legitimate title. And... Um, we'll get an even more explicit linking of the idea that the church is an infallible teacher to a further thought that the church is an impeccable lawgiver in Melchior Cano, a very important theologian who I'll come back to. He says, Then the church cannot define something to be a vice that is morally good or to be virtuous what is morally bad. So this is the infallible teaching authority concerning morals. Therefore, in the law which she makes, the church cannot approve something that is contrary to the gospel, the revealed law of the new covenant, or to reason, the natural law. For which reason, just as a council cannot put forward falsehood, and this is going to be a papally approved council, with for which reason, just as a council cannot put forward falsehoods to the people as what they are to believe, so it cannot put forward evil as to be done. So we've got an inference from infallibility in teaching to impeccability in legal lawmaking. Okay. Well, you might think, 
why should I believe this? Because it sounds good. You immediately think, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, this is. But then you think, well, why can't, given the silence of Pastor Eternus on this question, why can't the church be an infallible teacher but not an impeccable lawgiver? Well, there's a sort of line of thought that comes up in these people again and again, and it's quite a treacherous one. It's the following thought. The church can't legally direct you to do something morally wrong, because remember, a potestas, as a lawgiver, is also a teacher. By making this law, it will be conveying the thought to you, the belief to you, that what it's commanding you to do is morally right. But then, if what it's commanding you is in fact morally wrong, it would be erring as a teacher of morals. So it can't happen. You get this thought time and time again. But there's now a problem with it. The church's guarantee not to err in teaching is actually, as we all know, restricted. It's restricted to what it proposes formally as something you are under an obligation to believe. And as once that obligation to believe, or at least submit to with some sort of act of the mind, is introduced, then the uh, preservation from error comes into action. In other circumstances, there isn't actually a guarantee that the church can't be conveying beliefs to you that are quite false through, for example, official theology. That's part of the theological community that uh, comes out in sermons and uh, various other forms of non-magisterial ways of addressing you. Now, when the church directs you to do something, the only legal and moral obligation directly arising from that directive is to do what it says. At least they get that legal obligation, and perhaps there might be a moral obligation as well. It's not imposing even a legal obligation, let alone a moral obligation, on you to believe anything particular about the directive. You've just got to do it. That's why, when Melchior Cano is thinking more carefully about another topic, and he's no longer trying to run this dodgy line, but he's arguing about something else. This is always shows up when people are, uh, uh, have got a weak argument. They abandon it, and it no longer matters to them. He says, of course, if someone morally criticises a, can a settled canonical directive of the church, they may well be thinking falsehoods. In fact, they likely are. But you can't accuse them of heresy, which, of course would presuppose they'd been put under an obligation to believe something in relation to the directive, namely that it was morally right. So Carnot kind of knows that this is, this is, this is, he's pulling a fast one. But they're all doing this one. They're all slipping uh, from the idea of the church as a teacher, qua lawgiver, to confusion between the informal conveyance of beliefs through uh, legal prescription to formal magisterial teaching that actually is preserved from error. And they're quite different things. Okay. Bellamin is very similar to Carnot. He says, the supreme pontiff cannot only, not only cannot err in doctrines of the faith, but nor can he err in moral directives, which are given for the whole church, and which are concerned with matters necessary to salvation, or what is per se good or bad. So he cannot direct to what is vicious, such as usury, um, or direct to what is now contrary to salvation, the practice of circumcision, or forbid what is necessary to salvation, the practice of baptism. Okay. Then he says, the Pope could direct what is neither good nor bad in itself, nor in itself contrary to salvation, but simply useless, inutile. But it is not for subjects to debate this issue, but only to obey. 
I told you, we've got a, 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 a theological culture that, that is not in the business of giving you moral, moral tickets not to obey. Simply not interested in doing that very much. Actually, that's a bit oversimplifying. Bellamy does, at a later stage of De Samuel Pontificet, consider, when he's looking at the precise workings of the church as a quasi-political authority, at ways in which, without directly and immediately conflicting with morality, a pope could go in for defective legislation, which might possibly remove your moral obligation to obey. These are going to be forms of legislation which don't just in terms of what they're directing you to do conflict with moral law, but only in the circumstances, once you add in further, further features of the situation. And he gives an example, for example, where a pope introduces conditions that in many circumstances do not belong in justice uh, uh, to what the directive is about. Like, if a pope, he says, uh, made it a requirement of being made a bishop, that you be noble or rich... Um, now, he says there could be circumstances in which that, that was all right. It served the interest of the church for that to be the case. Interestingly, he didn't think the early 17th century was such a case. <laughs> <laughs> he actually had a big, big thing about bad people being made bishops. It was a rather testy private correspondence between <coughs> him and Pope Clement VIII on this, when he's a cardinal. Um, the other case is, this is a case where a pope omits conditions that might be relevant to what a directive is about, at least under many circumstances. Someone, a pope imposing fasting regulations that pay no attention to the age or health of people subjected to them. Okay, he said that would be unjust in many circumstances. Okay, so we don't have perhaps a moral obligation to obey. Well, Bellamin says, but remember the danger of scandal and also remember that it might be good for you in humility to go the extra mile. <laughs> The one thing he doesn't consider is the following situation. Okay, look, the, the, the directive isn't immediately completely immoral. It's just so damaging in the circumstances that if everyone followed that directive or that set of directives, it could be liturgical directives perhaps, it will actually start doing really serious damage to the mission of the church. And so you shouldn't think about your humility or uh, uh, the danger of scandal because you've got this project of stopping a really damaging set of legislation being enacted and going into action. He just doesn't consider that. He doesn't mention it. It's not a concern. Now, why is this? Well, there's a further thought that's going on. There's another route into this sort of impeccability of legislation um, <clears throat> um, theory. It's not from the thought of the church as teacher, but it comes immediately from the thought of the church as lawgiver. And it's the thought that the church, unlike the state, is a really perfect or, or much better lawgiver because it's got all this divine support. And so, um, just looked at apart from teaching, its, de its, de its decrees must do their work. It must further the supernatural good in the general case once it's settled, once we're dealing with settled legislation. Okay. They might make you know, a bit of an exception for a, a transitory decree that's here to decree that's here today or gone tomorrow or, or is just directed at a particular individual, not the whole church. Or they might, you know, realise there might be something iffy about certain sanctions. Carno is particularly sort of edgy about committing himself to the justice of all sanctions. Um, but otherwise, it's going to, it's going to be fine. So um, he says, for a legislator, this is Carno again, um, the, all this stuff is coming from Carno's De, De Locis Theologicis, which might be translated as on, on the sources of theology. And I need to come back to this book, it's really important. For a legislator is imperfect... 
if it fails to decree those things without which the end of the political or public community uh, um, cannot be obtained. But the spirit of truth communicates to the apostles and their successors, that's bishops and bishops in communion with the Pope, these lawgivers, whatever Christ has told us, in those directives necessary for life, they cannot err. And they kind of see this meaning, you can't just have a direct conflict with the moral law. Um, you, you can't have sort of a breakdown of, 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 of effectiveness and furthering the supernatural end. Well, I'm going to come to some cases where I think there was one, and we'll come back to that. Uh, and it's not to do with the liturgy, it's going to be something completely different. But that's their view. And this is, this is further, further reinforced by another view of what's going on when people make canon law. And it's an adaptation of a thought about how the church is infallible when she teaches. There is a sort of an immediate assistance being given by the Holy Spirit to the church that prevents dodgy teaching under certain conditions at any rate being given. Well, they are having the thought that there's a, an immediate form of assistance given to the church to prevent dodgy laws being made. Of course, once you have that thought, um, you are going to start thinking as a sort of complete parallel between the infallibility of the church as a, as a, as a teacher and her impeccability as a lawgiver. And um, we get this theory, um, but it's not peculiar to him, but I mean it's particularly clearly stated by him in Melchior Cano, De Locis Theologicis. Cano is a very, very important figure in the history of Catholic theology. He's a, a notably ill-tempered and personally difficult <laughs> Spanish Dominican who uh, lives between the 16th century and about 1560. He's for a while a bishop in the Canary Islands, which pisses him off mightily. Uh, but he manages to get his way back to Spain and back to counselling Philip II, which is much, much more his preference. Um, and um, he's really beastly to at least one fellow cleric who was under, under the grip of the Inquisition for a very long time, partly because of his... his unfriendliness. Um, and, but Carno is interested in what sort of theological sources are particularly authoritative. It's De Locis Theologis, on the sources of theology. And his work is amazing. It's posthumously published about a year or a couple of years or four years after his death, in the early 1560s. And it, it is very highly regarded. So much so that in the mid-19th century, when uh, Catholic theology in Rome is being, is being restored in the Restoration Papacy by theologians like Giovanni Peroni, who is the chap who welcomes Newman into the church and is one of Pius IX and Gregory XVI's most important theological advisors, he patterns his own work on Melchior Cano, on De Locis Theologicis. He wants his work on dogmatic theology to, to be a modern, 19th century modern contribution akin to Melchior Cano's. And one of the sources of theology that Carno considers is canon law. He's a bit territorial. He, he's, very, he's very rude about the expertise of canon lawyers in relation to the theological significance of canon law. Of course, Carno is not a canon lawyer. He's a theologian. And he says the theologian, of course, is required to explain the theological significance of canon law. But it has great theological significance. Um, Actually, Carno's views are very representative. If you look at the discussion of what's important theologically in canon law, you will go to those bits of the corpus of canon law, because, of course, we're dealing in pre-code days, long before then. You will look at those parts of corpus that tend to be treated, so he wasn't at Trent, 
as very important by the theologians advising the council fathers at Trent. So, for example, we'll come back to this particular provincial council. He thinks Toledo IV, which is a small provincial council, um, it's not a general council, in Visigothic Spain around 633, but it's in Gratian's Decretum. It's a really important authority, and theologians and bishops need to know about it because it's a sure guide to what's legally permissible and proper within the church. Lo and behold, Toledo IV says um, that it's all right, you shouldn't coerce unbaptized people into the church, that's very wrong, but if they're baptized, then you can coercively enforce baptismal obligations to the faith on them. That is used at Trent specifically to base the condemnation of Erasmus for denying that. It's, it's the coercive canon of the decree and baptism, and it's all based on Toledo IV. Uh, so what Carnot said was important is treated as important by the theologians at the council. Why is canon law so important? Well, it is actually issued, according to Carnot, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the canons of the church are issued on the prompting of the Holy Spirit. As Damasus says, who's Damasus? This is Pope Damasus I. Very important 4th century pope, um, known to Jerome, uh, very, very, very important authority, treated with much reverence. And this is a quotation of Damasus that you will find in Gratian's Decretum. So it's actually in the code of, earliest part of the code of canon, uh, sorry, the corpus of canon law. Um, it kind of looks as though um, Cano is supporting the authority of canon law by quoting canon law which might sound immediately less than wonderful. But bear in mind, this is the teaching of a pope. So now we've got something which we've so far been looking for in vain, which is some potential magisterial backing, perhaps, for all this stuff about the impeccability of canonical legislation. Do we have it? Well, the letter is actually in Gratian's Decretum, and you can read it if you go to Friedberg's edition. I'll read it to you. This is a letter from Pope Damasus I, to Aurelius, Bishop of Carthage. Again, this is sometime in the 380s, I think. Uh, Those who voluntarily breach the canons are harshly judged by the Holy Fathers and condemned by the Holy Spirit at whose prompting they are issued. Since someone who shamelessly does or speaks something against the same canons, when not compelled by necessity to do so, but acting freely, or who freely consents to others willingly so doing, is rightly seen to be blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Such presumption is clearly of one kind with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, since, as we have already said, they are acting against him at whose prompting and by whose grace the holy canons are issued. Wow. This is, this is meaty magisterial teaching for this, 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 this official theology that we've been looking for magisterial backing from. Well, no, it's not. Pope Damasus never sent this letter. This is pseudo-Damasus. This is straight out of the pseudo-decretals, uh, sorry, the false decretals of the pseudo-Isidore. What are the false decretals of the pseudo-Isidore? They are a body of forged papal judgments, canonical judgments, purporting to be from the early popes, up to and including Damasus, which have the peculiar characteristic of being written in ninth-century ecclesiastical Latin, <laughs> of being, having been totally absent from the West 
between the 4th century and the mid-9th uh, century. And they all seem to come from somewhere in northern France. And they all seem oriented towards backing the position of an extremely pissed-off bishop, Ebo, once Archbishop of Reims, now sweating somewhere as a bishop in Germany. And what happens to Ebo is he runs up against the Carolingian monarchy in the, in the Carolingian Empire, and he is deposed and replaced by someone he really can't stand called Hinkmar. And somewhere, it, I mean, this is the late, there's long been debate about where the false decretals come from. It looks as though it's probably in the cathedral chapter at Reims after, after Ebo's departure, when, of course, they're slightly threatened by Hinkmar, who doesn't like them very much. Ebo's former supporters start putting forward decretals that somehow make what was done to Ebo look canonically very irregular, but utterly fail to support or in any way the position of Hinkmar. Yeah. And what they particularly do is they're, they're very strong against the power of secular authority to interfere in the position of the church. And they're really strong uh, on the authority of canon law. So what you have is a forged letter from Aurelius saying, oh, most, most eminent pope, please send me some decretals that will confirm the authority of the apostolic canons, which bad people are impugning and not regarding. And Damasus, pseudo Damasus, replies, sure, mate, um, here, here's a load of decretals. And by the way, it's really, really bad to disobey canon law. <laughs> now, <clears throat> these, these false decretals, people get wind, the wind up about them when they start just, you know, realising the donation of Constantine's forgeries in the 15th century. But great, some of them have got integration. And they're also telling people what people want to hear anyway. Because people anyway do believe that canon law has this immense moral authority. And so Catholic official theology is immensely resistant to the increasingly strong case for the forged character of these decretals. Uh, no time is given to the opinion that there's anything wrong with them at the time of Trent. Uh, when, when the corpus is re-edited in 1580, they're not removed, those that have gone integration. It's only in the early 17th century when Protestant attacks, largely from Geneva, become so academically destructive that people just give up. So we've got a theology, an official theology of canonical authority, the only support for which that's clearly magisterial isn't clearly magisterial at all because it's forged. <laughs> so there is a lesson for us. Let's go back to these cases where people in Rarati are making out that these papalist theologians are somehow backing us in advance in our struggles against um, the Begolian papacy. Let's take this really interesting case where Suarez um, says, here's a case of a pope going wrong. A pope might try and abolish apostolic liturgies. And then you know, the implication is you'd be justified in saying, stop, we won't cooperate with this. Well, if you look at what's going on, it's not clear that that's the lesson to be drawn. <clears throat> this is all from the discussion of schism in De Caritate. And what he's doing is he's, he's not trying to give you a license to disobey the Pope. He's trying to explain the nature of schism in relation to papal primacy, which he deeply believes in as the, to, in a way that, in ways that conciliaries don't. Um, and he's trying to explain to you how, if you understand papal primacy really well, not to diminish the Pope's authority at all, you could see how a Pope himself could, in a way, be schismatic. Now, if you see schism 
as the abandonment of the unity of the church than precisely because the Pope and his authority embodies the unity of the church. There could be a theoretical kind of misexercise of authority that was an abandonment from within of the unity of the church. And he provides two examples of this. One is the one that I've already mentioned, <clears throat> the, the attempted abolition of apostolic liturgies. The other is, and this now tells us what we're really dealing with, uh, uh, certain, not uh, improbable thought experiments that are designed to illustrate a point. Not a story about how, in actual fact, a canonical legislation could be uh, peccable, could be faulty. Uh, he says, the other case is if the Pope excommunicated everyone else in the church, he'd essentially be abandoning the unity of the church in a fairly fundamental way. But, you know, as far as doesn't think that's going to happen, or God would ever permit it to happen, it's just, if per impossible, the Pope excommunicated everyone in the church, then he'd be in a kind of internal schism. Because he, 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 he would be, as the principle uh, of unity, removing everyone from unity with him, and then destroying the unity of the church. Clearly what he's, Suarez is thinking about in relation to apostolic issues, it's not really, I mean, you know, apostolic ceremonies confirmed by apostolic tradition. What is it? I'm thinking what he means is something like, not the Pauline liturgical reform, but just a comprehensive abandonment of liturgical structure in the church, which is something fundamental to the unity of the church on anyone's view. And if the Pope did that, again, they'd be abandoning the unity of the church from within. So that's what's going on. It's, it's not a proto... Uh, license to, to join the SSPX. Okay. <clears throat> Can we find cases, I'm going to go really fast now, of, of the sort of thing that Bellman didn't really talk about, really objectionable, settled legislation of the church, settled for a very long time, that has done untold damage to the spiritual mission of the church? I submit you can easily find this, and actually it took forms that led to considerable canonical problems at the extreme, but not generally. It was generally regarded as perfectly pucker. This is canonical legislation in relation to the Jews. You'll get it in the Decretals of Gregory IX. You'll get it in Toledo form. Um, that's quite a, quite a little provincial council, that one. Um, and they also do things like uh, Jews um, must wear identifying marks. They uh, must uh, put their synagogues well away from churches. Um, they are not allowed to wander in public on holy days, like Good Friday. They've got to be locked up in their houses on Good Friday. Um, they, uh, Toledo 4, if a Jew converts, they must not be allowed contact with people still practising Judaism. That should be forbidden, including their parents if they're still practising Judaism. Now, I think that this is very immoral. And what you're doing is, instead of evangelising the Jews you are putting a premium on protecting the Christian community from spiritual pollution. That's what it's about. And the various ways in which, the, uh, if I won't go into the, the, the canonical structures, actually, it's, de, it, 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 it's intravirus, it's not, it's not ultravirus. There, there's a story you can tell about ecclesial authority. If this stuff is very immoral, it's still possible within the, I think, a magisterially taught conception of the church as a potestas. It's just very nasty. And it's liable to frustrate the um, uh, mission of the Jews to evangelise all people. Of course, once you uh, endanger your evangelising mission by coercively distancing and alienating a population, 
the thought may come into head that the only way then of evangelizing them is doing a reverse coercion by forcing their attendance. And so here we have uh, something that probably is very irregular. <coughs> this is the famous forced sermonizing of the Jews of Rome, which um, I can't remember when it starts. Suarez thinks it goes back to Nicholas III. It was certainly confirmed and established in a very orderly way by the Pope when Suarez is teaching at the Roman College in the 1580s, which is Gregory XIII. What happens is that the adult male Jews, who've been locked by Paul IV Carafa in a, in a ghetto, are forced, at least once a year, perhaps sometimes more often, to attend a compulsory sermon. Usually, our period, probably preached by a Dominican. And they, they have to be there. John Evelyn <clears throat> wisely wanted to avoid the Civil War. So in six, the 1640s, Evelyn, John Evelyn travels to Rome. In January 1645... He is in Rome when this ceremony of compulsorily, coercively sermonising the Jews is taking place. Here's his description. He's actually there watching it. A sermon was preached to the Jews at Pontisisto, who are constrained to sit till the hour is done, but is with so much malice in their countenances, spitting, humming, coughing and motion, that it is almost impossible they should hear a word from the preacher. A conversion is very rare, you don't say. <laughs> now, this actually, this, this particular pr procedure is canonically controversial. And one of the theologians who strongly objects to it is Alfonso Salmeron, who's an important figure at Trent. He's not actually located in the Papal States, which might make dissent easier. And he says, look, the story why it's wrong is this. Under what authority is the Pope imposing this on the Jews of Rome? Is it his authority as temporal ruler of the Papal States? No, because then there's clearly a supernatural, a religious end that's been served by this, these sermons. And quite, merely qua temporal, really, he has no authority mm -hmm. to uh, uh, make law for supernatural ends. Jamie, yeah, but Salmon's uh, a Jesuit. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. Right. So, Salmon says, it must then be un under the Pope's authority a spiritual ruler. But he has no spiritual jurisdiction over these Jews because they are not baptised. So the whole thing is irregular. And there's a huge debate amongst uh, theologians of canon law at this date, including Banyath, who says, well, maybe you can do it once, but if you keep on repeatedly doing it, this comes at a tantamount to forced conversion. You can't do that. Again, Banyas isn't based in Spain. He's not based in Rome. Suarez is writing in the Roman College under Gregory XIII, who actually attended Suarez's lectures at the Roman College. He, he, was, he was a big fan of the young, brilliant young Father Suarez. So he attends uh, Suarez's lecture in the Roman College incognito, behind a curtain. Um, but Suarez says, yeah, well, actually, Banyas must be wrong because the Pope has done this for a very long time. So we've got the impeccability of canonical authority just coming straight in. Uh, I, mean, I expect the fact that you're actually in Rome with, with Gregory XIII as your patron probably um, discourages <laughs> theological dissent. And actually, the, the, the justificatory story Suarez gives is so feeble. It says, well, the, the Pope can do this as temporal ruler because it, it fosters uh, peace in the temporal order, which seems to be extremely dubious. Uh, I mean, this is this is this is fairly desperate stuff. Um, anyway, but look, my point is, this stuff looks immoral, and certainly it was, however, canonically regular at the level of what we were talking about before we got to the compulsory sermons. 
Um, but it's, it's clearly been extremely damaging to the mission of the church because we're now locked into a situation where no one can talk about the evangelization of all people, Jew and Gentile alike, because the mission to the Jews is somehow out of order. So you get a, an official theology that rejects dual covenant theology, it rejects the idea that the Jews have another way to salvation besides the Gentiles, but then adopts a pastoral policy that only makes sense on dual covenant theology, which is that we'll never actually ask them to convert. Yeah. And that's just bonkers. It's, 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 a, it's an official theology of modernity that's as confused, well, it's more confused in some ways, but I, well, actually, there's simply a lot of confusion around the compulsory sermons as well. But it, it's, it's, it's confused and, but also objectionable, and objectionable in another way, at another extreme, as the old official theology of how we should treat the Jews was objectionable in its day. And, and the damage has come from there. So we've got an empirical case of how dodgy exercises of canon law can be probably things that would be immoral to obey and do great damage. And, of course, there's at least one un unambiguous mis-exercise of spiritual authority involved in the compulsory sermons. The Pope is ordering under obedience priests to be complicit in coercive religious abuse of Jews. So that went on for hundreds of years. So if someone says, well, you know, the Pope has ordered this liturgy... Well, you can't damage the mission of the church through a liturgical form. That's far too central to the life of the church. I put it to you, the evangelization of half of the object of Christ's mission is just as important to the mission of the church. And for a very long time, the church was in a position or acted in a way deeply damaging to that. And it would have been a great deal better if people hadn't treated the exercise of canonical authority with undue reverence on the basis of sort of an infallibility, impeccability inference that has no basis. Um, what's the lesson for, just briefly, for more about this? Well, we certainly don't want to look at <clears throat> uh, early modern official theology as, as some sort of pattern for the traditionalist cause. I, I think it's now obvious that it's not. They wouldn't have had any sympathy for defiance of liturgical legislation that goes back around 50 years now, and it's pretty universal, certainly through the Latin rite. Um, because they wouldn't have thought, well, it could still be very damaging. It's just not, this is just not on the, 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 the radar, for all the reasons I've mentioned. So what, what is true, though, is that we've got to identify official theology for what it is, as something distinct from magisterial teaching, as not, in, not problematic in itself. You've got to have some theological basis uh, uh, for doing things at the magisterial level which won't itself be magisterially divine. The magisterium is not going to go all the way down. There's going to be a set of theological presuppositions. You're always going to have to be working with those. But they're not guaranteed freedom from error in the way the magisterial teaching might be. And they need to be constantly reviewed. And one thing you shouldn't do is to use canonical authority on the basis of some assumption it must always be obeyed from a moral point of view to try and enforce further dodgy official theology. And that's surely what's happened since the Second Vatican Council, particularly in relation to the liturgy. I won't go into all that's wrong with the Pauline liturgical reform from a theological point of view, but it's associated with a programme of official theology that is notably distant from clear magisterial teaching and is relentlessly enforced. One, not, not through heresy trials, 
No, no, because we're enforcing official theology, not magisterial teaching. So you are not going to condemn for heresy if you dissent, but you'll be punished in other ways. Um, you won't get a job. Your, your sweeties will be taken away from you. You won't be allowed to celebrate your liturgy anymore because you dared to criticise the liturgical reform. Uh, this, is, this is very bad um, because the liturgical reform comes with an official theology of what's good about the liturgical reform that's clearly not magisterial teaching. It works something like this. <clears throat> the spiritual effectiveness of the liturgy changes over time from culture to culture. You see Arthur Roach saying this stuff like this some of the time. And whatever was good, and they'll always refer to it as the Liturgy of Trent, whatever was good about the Liturgy of Trent was for then. We need a different liturgy now, and it's this liturgy that's spiritually appropriate for our times. Now that's not something that was revealed before the death of the last apostle, because it's to do with uh, relationship. Even assuming their theological model is roughly right, it's to do with a changing relationship between liturgical forms and, and cultural conditions long after the last apostle died, about which they not seem, do not seem to have been informed in advance. It's not even if it, as if the official theologians could say, ah, oh, but it was revealed to the apostles that whatever the cultural conditions, the church would then have a liturgical form appropriate to those cultural conditions. They're not going to say that because the progressives were denying that before the liturgical reform. They were saying that the liturgy of Trent, as they call it, was already inappropriate and had been inappropriate for some time for modernity, and it was long past due that there should be a reform of it. So they have in their time been in the position of saying there is something seriously defective about a canonically enforced liturgical reform. So they can hardly criticise us when we make exactly the same point, possibly with better reason, in the opposite direction. And there I shall stop. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.